0: Tonight, we are going to be continuing in our series on First Peter. Um, it's been a couple weeks since we took our last dive into First Peter. Um, we took a break last week to talk about, do you guys remember? Dating. Dating, love. That's enough stuff to make us forget anything we ever read about Peter. <laughs> At least me. So, I'm going to do some like thorough refreshers tonight as we dive in. Um, it's going to like, launch us into tonight's text. So, first off, we have some reminders so reminders about the author and audience and context. Just so you know, those are like super important things to like have in our brains as we're basically reading somebody else's mail in this letter from Peter to the churches that he's writing to. So having all this stuff in our brains. So this book that we're reading, this letter is written by Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest 12 guys. Sorry, this is like doing stuff. Um, so anyways, Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection... Um, Peter became one of the leaders in the early church, and um, so he wrote this letter to other followers of Jesus who were going through a lot of persecution during Nero's reign. The main theme... I think it just completely... Oh, there we go. Sorry, guys, this is a ride. Just <laughs> bear with me. Um, the main theme in the book is to stand firm in the faith in the face of like, intense suffering and persecution. Every single chapter in this letter refers to suffering in some way. That's pretty unique. And obviously the ultimate example that we have of somebody who endured um, righteous suffering and like kept an alert and a sober mind through it is Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't really call us to things that he himself hasn't pioneered and authored and lived out first. And likewise, Peter, he's writing to these fellow believers to live out the stuff that he himself is like running alongside of them and ahead of them in. In fact, spoiler alert, he's going to be martyred for his faith um, in Nero's reign like a handful of years after penning this letter. So, Peter is like living out this keeping to the faith in the face of persecution. So, Peter's writing to these guys about a hope that is firm regardless of circumstances because it's anchored in Jesus. And he writes to them about a security that is untouchable because it's in Christ, who has already defeated everything, even death. Every enemy that could threaten them, Jesus has defeated. So, what do we have to be afraid of? That's a pretty cool type of hope. So, a question for us tonight is do you personally believe? That God is bigger than your problems and the threats facing you? Do you believe that Jesus is more powerful than all of your fears? Do you believe that he is truly good and trustworthy? I just wanted to ask those because if the answer is like, not really, then I think you might struggle to embrace this kind of a hope that we're talking about, that Peter's writing about. And it would be pretty confusing to like live out a living hope in the face of super dreadful circumstances. But on the flip side, if you do happen to believe that, and you live accordingly, you're going to find the truth of what Peter's been writing. Like in chapter 1, you're going to find that you have received new birth into a living hope and, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that can't be touched by anything on the outside, any person, because that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And you, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And in all this, you'll greatly rejoice, even though for like a little bit, you'll have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Those are there to refine you and strengthen and fortify your faith, which is worth more than gold, um, so that your tried and true faith can bring about glory and praise and honor when Jesus is revealed in the soonish future. And because you love him and you believe in him, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's just stuff that Peter is writing in like the beginning part of chapter one. And I love that part. And then like Brandon taught last time, kind of the end of chapter one and a little bit into chapter two, Peter says that we are to live really holy lives. Do you guys remember what holy means? It means that we're basically set apart. We're like separated from like the main mass, the main glob of like common, average American, normal college student life and purposes and priorities. We're like pulled out of that and set apart on this like new high shelf for Jesus and his purposes. So your your stuff is set apart, Your your mind is set apart, your time is set apart, those things are no longer guided by what your parents or professors or worldly friends or TikTokers or anybody else would say is priority. But it's now like changed and set apart on this like high shelf for Jesus alone and what he says is priority. Your solo influencer King Jesus would say is priority. I tried to be cool with that one. Didn't work. Anyways (laughs) your your body is no longer used in doing the things that we all used to do. We were ruled by the flesh. And captive to sin and the devil, we are now like changed and sanctified and made holy. Um, and that our, every part of your body is now set apart as a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. And, and we all get to be walking out this new way for humanity that Jesus pioneered and that we inherit. And you probably notice we can literally only do by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Who's tried resisting sexual, sexual temptation on your own power or temptation to any kind of sin Um, all that stuff that we're now separated from if we are in Christ and we're set apart for different use. We can only do that by the help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But we can do that by the help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Everything is different now. Your computer is set apart for different use. Your internet is set apart for different use. The apps on my phone should be set apart for different, not normal person use, which I mean, obviously, I'm not normal. But anyways, it's now like holy Jesus priorities use. Everything in your life and mine, guys, is serving a different master than it used to. Cuz we were bought with a price from our previous slavery to sin and Satan, and our freedom was paid for by the precious blood of Jesus, and we're set free not to run right back to what we were just freed from, but to like live a new, different, set apart life. So that's what I would say at this moment about holiness is kind of some of the things that Peter's trying to write about. Last little Bible nerd tangent for you before we like actually dive into our section tonight. Um, It's something really cool that I learned through the commentary in preparation for this. Um, So like I said, Peter writes a lot about holiness. And I learned that it's not always meaning like the exact same single facet of holiness. It's not like it's only like a one-story thing. It's more like a three-story house, is my made-up analogy, of kind of like the levels of holiness that Peter's operating on. So I just want to hit you with those three because they're cool. So the first one is personal holiness, so that's what I think we often would assume is the default, like how each person separates themselves from sin. Like when you're reading Ephesians, and the Bible's like, hey, you, don't get drunk. Or like, in your anger, do not sin. Or like, That's a personal thing of like, yo, yep, I need to apply that with the Holy Spirit. I need to like obey this and apply it to my life right now. Um, and the Holy Spirit's going to help me. As children of God, we are to be holy as our, as our Father is holy. The second one... Um, that Peter writes about is called Social Holiness, which I think is the bomb.com. So the end of our passage is going to start kind of dipping our toes in social holiness, and Tim's message next week is going to take it way further, dubs. So it's like, how do we as the set-apart people of God relate to those in our society? How do we relate in a set-apart kind of way? How do we treat authorities and bosses and laws and spouses? Peter has some stuff to say about this, because our witness depends on how we act and relate to those outside the community of believers. How we relate to worldly authorities and structures isn't just something for like, mm, doesn't really matter, just like you do you, personal like, priorities. It's really important because our witness depends on how we make Jesus look to this world. So Peter's going to have some words. I mean, James has some hot takes. A lot of people who are trying to make disciples have some, some ideas about how we can live um, in social holiness for the job of making disciples. And the third one is communal holiness. So that's like basically things that are going to make or break the unity of the church, the family of believers, like within the church. So Peter already assumes that the individual peeps, the individual Christians have been trying to separate themselves from like the typical sins of our culture when they start following Jesus, right? And so now he's zeroing in on like the stuff that's going to really break the family. Um, so he's, you notice a lot of the, the sins he's talked about so far are like vices of the tongue, like ways that our words can really hurt each other. So just imagine if we, we, were like going through persecution as a ministry. It's probably hard to imagine because we haven't really lived through that, but pretend the university was super against us and lots of people around us were against us. Um, There were lots of threats and we felt just like so much pressure on all sides. I hope that when we would gather together, we would feel so unified and that our gatherings together would be just like... Breath of fresh air. I'm with my people. Like, where we can be encouraged with each other. We can have the shared perspective. It's awesome. So that's essentially what Peter is calling the churches in these parts of the world a couple thousand years ago during Nero's reign to do. But then imagine we start being like way too sarcastic to each other. Imagine we started gossiping or like saying mean jokes and like keeping up in the line of like mean jokes that are allowed. And imagine somebody feels hurt, and instead of talking to that person, they talk to, like, 75 other people. Um, Can you, like, imagine how quickly our unity is going to be, like, eroded and chipped away? Um, That unity that is so precious and necessary can be gone just like that because of what these tongues can do with our words. So Peter is really focused on communal holiness in this letter as well as the other two. Separate yourselves from gossip and slander— and malice, and so many sins that are so easy to do, right? They're so easy to just not be thinking and say something, but they can destroy the unity of the church. So anyways, I hope you guys thought that that was cool. If not, I had fun Um, with those three levels of of holiness, because it's just cool when you look at the verse. Like, I tried to look up verses for, like, the personal one, and I was always like, well, actually, is this to a church? Like, now I can't even tell if it's, like, to an individual or just to a body. Like, it's so cool to start, um, to start seeing those going on. So anyways, as set-apart people, all these kinds of ways of holiness help us learn to live a set-apart life in, as a community. And that's kind of our theme for tonight, how to live a set-apart life as a family together. So as promised, here is our actual message tonight in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. So Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay, so I'm not really sure where this passage lands on the spectrum of like being super understandable to like what on earth. Um, But we're just going to dive in and try to um, chip away at what we see going on here. So for the first part of of our text, I noticed a whole lot of stone talk. I don't have a different point number one for you other than a lot of stone talk. So you can write down with that or whatever you want. But just as a reminder, last time Brandon said like hashtag get girded last week. So we will not be saying hashtag get stoned this week. So do not write that. I'm checking. Don't write it. Stop it. Okay, I can't tell if anybody's taking notes or not. But anyways... So let's break down all the stone talk. It's a little Minecraft joke for you. Um, So what do we see going on in this passage? Okay, very beginning. We start by seeing a living stone. Question for answering aloud. Do you guys have any guess who this is referring to? Good job. I thought I would throw out a a low-risk one. Yes, you are all right who answered that. Um, Jesus is the living stone. So we see in verse 4... What do we learn about the living stone? We see he was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God. So breaking this down, the way, that this is, the way that this says that he was rejected by people, it paints a picture of like some builders picking up the stone and turning it all over and examining it, deciding that it's unfit for the building of the nation that they're building, and then just tossing it aside in the reject pile. And if you've ever read the biography accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... I bet you will notice how that played out over the years and months of Jesus' ministry. The religious leaders of his day continually tested him and rejected him, decided he was not fit to be the Messiah that they were expecting. And as like a little sidebar thing, this little comment that Peter's making probably would have been really encouraging to his readers because they were feeling very rejected by their society as well. They were feeling very rejected by their fellow citizens. So to be reminded that Jesus was the first... Um, Well, the prophets were kind of the first, but, you know, there's a lot of rejection going on, and Jesus, they can identify with him in that. So the first thing we learn about the living stone is he was rejected by humans. However, it says that God saw very differently from those human builders. God did not simply approve of Jesus as a stone for the building, but he valued him as a select, precious stone, a cornerstone. Um, Throughout this text, Peter is always drawing a contrast between the world and its lostness, and God and his people in his way. He's like always drawing a contrast very intentionally. It's not like it's like a 55 million like shades of gray of like an ombre thing of like we're a little bit better than average. It's like they're two separate camps, separate kingdoms. They're they're very, very different and in opposition to each other. Um, So have that in mind. Peter's always drawing a contrast. The builders rejected him. But God actually said, you are the most foundational, you're the foundation of my temple, Jesus. Jesus is the foundation for God's nation and his people. The cornerstone of the temple is Jesus now. Jesus is the one to whom Peter's readers have come and whose dual fate they share. Just like Jesus, they're rejected by their fellow man, but they will be approved by God in the end if they hold fast and stand firm throughout their suffering. So Jesus is the living stone. And jumping down to verse 6, 7, and 8, we'll see that Jesus, as a living stone, he prompts a response from people who come across him in their path. So people are walking along their life, they come across this living stone of Jesus, and this encounter can have two results. Some people will encounter Jesus, is what the text is saying, and they will choose to not believe, they'll choose to reject him. And in that case, it's saying that the stone they reject will lead to their fall and stumbling in the end, because as we know through scripture, Jesus is going to be exalted in the end. We're all going to face judgment for, for what we've done in this life and, and how we've chosen to, to respond to Jesus. So Jesus was a stumbling block to Israel's leaders back in the day, and he remains a stumbling block to those in every generation who meet him and choose to reject him. So that is one outcome for, following, for encountering Jesus. The other um, outcome that we see um, for people encountering the living stone is people will believe in him. So many of us here tonight have, have already chosen that. Um, if we meet Jesus, we hear his message, we commit ourselves to him wholeheartedly, then what happens? Scripture says, Peter says, we will be joined to him and joined into his community that he's building. We'll be built into the family that he is building, just like living stones ourselves. Verse 9 includes a Bible but, and whenever you see a Bible but, like, you stop and just be like, whoa, what are we talking about? Where, how are we pivoting, Paul or Peter or whoever? Um, but the Bible but helps us realize there's a divide. These are two very contrasting outcomes. Encountering the, Jesus can, encountering the living stone can have those two outcomes. Reject him and eventually stumble and fall, or receive him and be built up into his house. Have you made your decision yet about how you're going to respond to encountering Jesus? Okay, so as we're chipping through this passage, ah, all the rock puns, um, That was the first part about the living stone, who is Jesus. Then the passage keeps going on, talking about what happens to those people who come to the living stone and they believe in him. It says that we become part of that spiritual house of which he is the foundation or cornerstone. And he talks a lot more about those peeps, so that is the section we're in now. So this isn't an individualist thing. It's like a communal thing. This is really hard for us Americans because we are like super, super, super far on the spectrum of like individual people thinking. Um... But, by the way, much of the world, for most of history ever, has had way more of a communal sort of mindset and worldview. Um, So, in terms of this passage, it's not like we're all just individual stones, just chilling in a building site, like all isolated, just like doing our thing. It's not like that. As soon as we come to Jesus, we are immediately built together into this collective entity of God's people, of his building, a temple, a living spiritual house. I personally just love how unifying this is for the family of us as Jesus' followers. Um, Tiny little story. My favorite Easter so far in my life is this one time in college. I was on a mission trip over Easter in the country of Haiti. And I woke up on Easter morning and looked over a very different landscape than I'm used to in cold, depressing Washington at that time. Um, And it was just like lush green landscape of hills and mango trees and birds singing and kids giggling and just like the sounds of village life at very early in the morning, early than the night wake up here, uh, because it's loud. But anyways, um, and I was just looking over that landscape, feeling all happy, um, and I just thought about how, okay, this morning, like my mission team, we're going to go to church this morning, little village church, um, and it's so cool that every single believer coming to church today in Haiti and our team and everyone around the world is worshiping the exact same Father God that day. We are all worshiping the same God. We are all praising Jesus for the same life and death and resurrection that we have our hope in. We don't ever get too cool or like, get different classes or ever graduate from like, the foot of the cross in Jesus. We are all equally in his family from that exact same gospel. And I just love thinking about how I am like, equally as in Christ, as every like, Haitian villager or like, person in upscale Hong Kong or wherever you might be. Um, it's such a unifying thought that we're all saved by the same blood of Jesus shed on that cross and we're each joined into the same family built into the spiritual house even for around the whole world and it just kind of broadened my perspective because we always default to like what our experience has been that church and God's family is not just like my relatively fancy buildings in Bellevue or Bellingham or whatever but realizing it's it's the people And no matter what kind of hut or fancy buildings or air conditioning or not that we're in, like, we're all spiritually unified. We are all the church in this way. So back to our passage. um, Throughout the Old Testament, if you've had a chance to read any um, at this point, you'll notice probably there's a lot of amazing focus on, like, a physical temple that where God himself wanted to come down and dwell among his people um, and, and meet with them and forgive sins and be able to be approached with a lot of, like, rules and regulations and processes and stuff where he could be worshipped on this planet. Um, But after Jesus, after his life-changing, game-changing, history-rocking, death and resurrection, that all changed. The second that Jesus died, the the curtain in the temple, the big, fatty, thick is the better word, thick curtain that separated God's presence from people was just split top to bottom. Everything changed after Jesus died um, and was raised again. So now it's not about being a physical building or a physical place. It's about God forms his church, all believers into this living spiritual house. And this idea, again, for Peter's readers would have been so comforting in their oppression because physical buildings can be attacked or bombed or whatever. I don't think they had bombs then, but, you know, they could be, like, attacked by by their enemies. But a spiritual living house can't be threatened in those geographical, physical ways. And Peter's comforting his persecuted audience that, You guys are chosen as the people of God. This comforts them in their suffering and rejection, that their earthly rejection is only earthly. They are, in truth, the accepted ones of God. And then, last part for this, the imagery shifts, as it often does when I just start talking for a while. Um, It just shifts um, from being like believers, being the stones that make up that building, to like now Peter's saying, we're also like the priests who serve in that temple we as the church inherit the priestly function that Israel had carried in the Old Testament times. So in the Old Testament, ancient Israel times, and even like beyond the Bible, to so many different cultures and religions throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, like whatever religion it was, there would be like priests who would dwell in this temple and offer sacrifices in whatever way that deity required so that they would be pleased or appeased or whatever. And depending on the religion, they could be really complex types of sacrifices Super violent, super gross, super sketchy, just depended on that type of one. We're not going to get into all those tonight, um, obviously for time and because they're icky. Um, But the point is, as people following Jesus, what kinds of sacrifices do we offer as, allegedly we read, this royal priesthood functioning as priests in this temple together? I think that our method is really different because we are not approaching the throne of God out of fear or terror or superstition. We approach him through Jesus knowing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross once and for all, for, forever and fully, satisfied God's wrath and covered all of our sins, past, present, future, for everybody. And so we approach him not to get approval, but to respond with just a reflex of thanks and praise to him for doing what he's done for us. So I think that as, as priests in this kind of temple, we come to him out of that assurance that we're loved by God and that we're accepted by him. That's how we approach worship, like when we're reading the Bible right now, or when we respond to God in a few minutes tonight in worship, we just like remember what he's done for us and we just respond with a reflex of praise and thanks and joy and freedom. I think that it's so unique how we get to respond to Jesus as opposed to like any of the other types of priests and other religions um, is so personal and it's so freeing. We aren't priests going about it for performance. We're children who are loved. What a privilege that we get to approach the throne and respond to the king of the universe in this way. So as the priesthood of believers, we can offer spiritual sacrifices, like I said, praise and thanks to God. We can do loving acts of service to one another and just like um, walking in surrender to our king, like our life is a living sacrifice to him. So in summary for this section, like we become a priesthood that serves the king whose kingdom is breaking into this world. And our priestly duties are like offering those spiritual sacrifices I just talked about. It's such a privilege that we get to serve in the presence of our deity in this way coming near where nobody else dared come near, like Hebrews 9 and 10 slash all of Hebrews talks a lot about. And we have such a gift in this position before God, belonging to the king and getting to be in his presence without fear. And we are a holy nation, our set-apartness to God. We reflect the holiness of our king. Um, He set us apart to be his people, just like he set apart Israel in the Old Testament. And our purpose of us as this group is we can announce the glorious deeds of God, tell the whole world all the amazing things he has done, from creation to salvation to everything in Jesus' life, everything in our own personal lives and stories, we exist to herald his praises to the world. And speaking about talking to the world, that brings us to our last part tonight of how to live as a set-apart community. Kind of the second point, if the whole stone talk vague thing was your first point. Second point is living in the world. The last two verses of our text, verses 11 and 12, turn the focus towards social holiness. How do we live as set-apart people in society? Again, the concept of holiness and set-apartness reminds us what we were set apart from. We were set apart from a bunch of stuff, and we were set apart for a bunch of stuff. We were set apart from old things, that, like sinful desires that don't fit new creations anymore. And we're set apart for this new divine purpose and function. So like, think of a caterpillar become a butterfly, or whatever you want to. Like, We are transformed through that set-apart process. And we shed off, shed off those old habits, like Peter keeps talking about slander and gossip and hypocrisy and any way of deceiving anybody, stuff like that. And in verse 11, he says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Remember, that old junk does not fit new creations. And if we do kind of dip back into them again, it wages war against our souls. We don't always think of the Christian life as like war, but it really is in many ways. Um, and if we give in a temptation to sin, we, we basically invite a threatening, difficult conflict to like, come take up space in our lives and hearts. So remember all the persecution um, and rejection, rejection that Peter's audience were going through, enduring from the evil leaders, Big Bad Nero and the pagan society and everything? It's difficult enough to have war on the outside without inviting war like within your soul and brain and everything, right? That's, there's no rest in that, in that formula. So Peter says, guys, don't give in to what you know you've been set apart from because that means yielding to your enemy and allowing yourself to be taken captive again. Rather, Peter says in the last verse, live such good lives among the pagans or the people of your world that although they accuse you of doing wrong, basically just that's how they're persecuting them, they'll actually see that your actions are so legit and so full of integrity, free of hypocrisy, um, that they'll have no choice but to praise God when he comes back. And to me, guys, this is one of the most important lessons for why, the most important reasons for why we live set apart from sin, because we have a world to represent Jesus to. And the world is watching us as followers of Jesus. We are his representatives. We are his image, his reflections to our planet. And so I think that this should really rock us and be one of the top filters in our thinking. Like before you do something, think, would Jesus do this? What would Jesus think of this choice? And we should also think, how is this making Jesus look to the watching world? Are they going to think better or worse of Christ? am I helping or hurting my chance to share the gospel with that person by this choice? I learned this like the slightly hard way or just like the by experience way. My freshman year living with a non-Christian roommate and she called me out on a few things that I didn't really think were a big deal like just like skipping class um, and just like not going or taking food out of the dining hall when there was like a rule that you were not allowed to take food out of the dining hall. It was Western, don't worry. Um, But there was a rule and I was breaking it. Um, and my roommate, she had a pretty high moral code and she called me out on those things just for the principle of them. And I honestly am so glad that the Holy Spirit seized on my little brain in that moment and like moved in me deeply. Am I going to be dumb or am I going to realize I'm representing Jesus to her? I'm the closest person in her life who's a Christian. And she's been hurt recently by others who were hypocritical, um, who like, you know, said that they love Jesus, but then like acted really, really wrong um, when they thought nobody was looking. Am I going to reinforce that belief that we're all that way and Jesus is not really meant to be trusted or loved? Or am I going like, to bring healing and pave the way for future chances to share Jesus with her in a way where she's going to actually trust me because my life confirms, not hinders, my message? So I learned this basic concept of living above reproach, making sure that followers of Jesus don't live like, below the average moral code in our society and make unbelievers question our integrity and thus the integrity of our message, but rather we far exceed it. So we're called to live holy, set-apart lives, and also, Peter says, in the eyes of the world, be good. According to the pagan standards, Christians should be approved as living more moral lives than the pagans around them, Peter's saying, and it's like legit for us too. He's saying, therefore, live as good of citizens as far as possible, so the unbelievers around you can see your good deeds and conclude that Jesus is actually good. Melissa's straight-up translation for this concept Don't be dumb, but instead show the world that Jesus is good. This is to my freshman self and to anybody else who likes that. Don't be foolish and carelessly blow up the bridge if any bridge sort of exists between them and Jesus. Don't blow that bridge up by foolish choices. Flip side, live excellently so they can conclude Jesus is actually better than they could even imagine. And honestly, you guys, this lesson was ingrained in me so strongly it still really drives me today all the time. A few weeks ago, I driving to Chi Alpha late because of my life. Um, but I also forgot that I was supposed to be passing buckets. Um, so I was driving to Alpha late, and I was tempted to speed in the snow in University Way. Um, and then I thought, okay, what if I do speed? And then I get pulled over. And then I have to explain that I'm running late like a dum-dum because I was speeding irresponsibly because I'm trying to get to a Christian meeting on time. That always makes me slow down. Because that would not help a police officer have a better opinion of Jesus. Like, speeding the church is so ridiculous if that were to happen. um, That's not going to help them have a better opinion of Christians or of Jesus. Um, Here's another real one that, I mean, that one was real. This one's, like, deeper. Um, And I just want to be clear. This is something that I personally have wrestled with in my brain and heart. This is not, like, statements about anybody or any ministry or anything. Personally, in my brain and my heart, throughout COVID... um, this has been on my mind a lot. Um, my main motivator for taking COVID seriously hasn't been primarily fear about health or even the fact of like having a bachelor's degree in public health other than like science rules, Bill and I. Like, those things do factor into my thinking, but like the main thing that compels my conscience is this. How do we, as Jesus followers, make him look to the watching world in this time? Because they are watching. And so this is, again, just my experience, my thoughts, my brain. Welcome to my brain. Buckle up. Um... Early in the pandemic, I saw on the social media um, people like my roommate I talked about and other people I graduated with and I've still been trying to be a witness to Jesus for um, who are just working jobs in Seattle, buying houses in Bellingham. They're just living their 30-ish-year-old lives without Jesus, but they deeply, deeply care for others. And I would see them post about their convictions, their deep love for wanting to like, you know, wear masks in public and take every opportunity to not spread the gospel. Nope, not spread the virus. They are also not spreading the gospel because they don't love Jesus yet. But they, like, really wanted to protect the most vulnerable. And to me, when I read those posts, I was like, "Hey, that's the line of reproach. That's, like, the standard for at least that group of people. That's the line of reproach. And then, again, my brain, my experience, I sort of assumed, no worries, the church is going to, like, lead the way in this area. We're going to be, like, so concerned with protecting life and wellness. We're going to excel at loving our neighbors and being, like, the best citizens in these areas. And some are again. I'm not trying to point at anybody in but just like it has shocked me and shook me <laughs> to see like around the nation, or to read news articles, or to see perspectives by non-Christians about a church in their whatever city that's not following what I assumed they would follow. Um, it has just shocked me and left this like Grand Canyon of ache in my heart. Again, me personally, <laughs> I'm not making any statements for Kyle for what Um Obviously, not everybody thinks the same way about COVID. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying, for me personally, I always have those people um, that I graduated with in my brain. I always see them on social media, and I'm like, that's the people that I want to represent him to in this space. And then it's made me, like, big picture, just like worried about for the church in America, like, how are we setting ourselves up to share the gospel in the next, like, several years? Because the world is watching right now and learning something about how we love or how we choose to live out certain values. And I know that there's a lot of things. I'm not trying to say it's easy. I'm just trying to say that's like been a concern in my brain of like, how are these people <laughs> going to be reached? Um, are we living above reproach in every way? So again, I hope that that wasn't crossing a line. I'm just trying to say that like, in my brain late at night, this is what stresses me out. Um, and it's like that for many different social issues, many different things. I always think, how are my neighbors? How are these like, people I graduated with from Bellingham, like, all these liberal friends, how are, these, how are people going to see jesus as real and as respectable and as honorable Um, again what you take from my story is i think that this should be like not a afterthought sort of thing for us but this should be like the primary driver of us because isn't our job to make disciples in this world so like let's do that and like make him look good in this world um so again every issue that we think about I hope that Jesus will have, that people will have a better opinion of Jesus by how they see us act and live. Not to say, Jesus, I have no trust in you because you're people. I want them to say, Jesus, like, thank you for having people show me how good you can be. Um, so, as we are closing, I just wanted to ask, are there any ways for you, I said many, many words, are there any ways that the Holy Spirit is like bringing to your personal mind that you need to live above reproach in a certain way? Are there any ways that you need to repent of a foolish behavior to begin like strengthening bridges for Jesus for people that we're trying to represent him to? So in closing, the worship team can come on up when you are ready. I would just encourage you guys to look over your notes from tonight um, and just really listen to the Lord. Was there something that you learned? Was there something that he was speaking to you about himself? Was there something that he was speaking to you about yourself um, or about, about your core group, about us? How can we Excel in personal holiness and social holiness and um, communal holiness. I think that was the last one. Because, thank you, thank you, Tim. Yeah, I think that Peter would just encourage us um, as the royal priesthood, as Jesus' peeps in this place, how can we make him look good? Um, and I'm just going to pray to transition us to worship. Jesus, I thank you so much that you speak to every single person personally and the ways that you're speaking to me are different than how you speak to other people and i thank you for that you are so diverse and yet so unifying in how you minister to your people and how you teach us and how you reflect your image through every person here in a a unique way we cannot show you fully to this planet without every person um, reflecting your image in that way that they do and I just pray that you would teach us tonight, Jesus. Humble us. Um, show me if I'm wrong, if I need to learn. Like, just keep, keep showing us how to make you known to our planet, to our campus. Um, and I pray that you would um, just continue to show us the, the beautiful, beautiful privilege we have as your priests, as, as like living stones in your house, um, just the like personal freedom that we have in coming to you because we are dearly loved children. And I thank you for that and pray that you would Um, Be blessed by our worship tonight. God, in your name, amen.